Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest and author. And recently I read his book entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son. He wrote it just a few years before he passed away in 1996. Now, the book is about his encounter with the famous painting by Rembrandt of the same name, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and the insights and reflections he had on the scripture and the painting. It began when he was in France and he was visiting a special community for people that had mental disabilities. And he was talking to somebody in their office and he noticed a poster on the wall behind them. And it was of the, the painting. And so he asked about it and he just was mesmerized by this painting by Rembrandt of the father and the son who has returned home. And the more he studied it, the more he felt it spoke to him. Now, his time of life was perfect for that portrait because he was in between places. He had been teaching and lecturing and traveling for years, and he was looking for his next place to serve, his next place to call home, and he was wrestling with that. He wasn't sure that uh, where he was going to go, and so he wanted that kind of image of coming home and being welcomed home. Well, a couple years later, he would have the opportunity to see the painting in, per in person. Now, the artist Rembrandt was actually born in the Netherlands, like Henry Nouwen. And in 1766, Catherine the Great acquired the painting and took it to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. And two years after he encountered the poster, he had some friends who invited him on a trip to Russia, and he was excited because he knew that meant he could see the painting in person. They connected him with the director of restoration at the Hermitage Museum, and the director took him directly to the room where the painting hung. And there was a, a large chair right in front of the painting, and he sat there and just studied the painting and kind of got lost in it. The colors, the meaning, the lighting, the shading. And before he realized it, he had spent over two hours there. Well, the director of restoration came back and said, look, you need a break. And he took him back to his office where he and his staff had prepared kind of a, a whole meal of pastries and treats for him along with coffee. And they sat around and the director and his staff told Henry everything they knew about the history of the painting. But they were intrigued by all of Henry's spiritual insights that he had gleaned himself. Well, after that break was over, Henry went back and sat in front of the painting again over an hour until the Russian guard who spoke no English made it perfectly clear that the museum was closing and he needed to leave. Before he left the country, he was able to have another time studying the painting, and he continued to read about Rembrandt and the painting and study the scripture for quite some time, and that became the book I read. Now, initially, Henry identified with the younger son, Again, he was kind of in between places, and 
He felt he had no home. He didn't particularly feel that his life at that time was pleasing to God or, or to anyone. And so he was really wrestling inside his soul. He shared that with his friends. And after a while, one of his friends suggested that he might also have some things in common with the elder son. Well, Henry got really frustrated at that. But as he started to reflect on it, he realized that he really did have some things in common with the elder son. He recognized that he was somebody who always tried to do the right thing. And he became indignant when he saw the wayward ways that some people lived their lives. And if he was just a little bit honest with himself, he was kind of jealous of them, of how they could just go about willy-nilly and he tried to do everything right. He also admitted that he wasn't always patient or gracious to others who made mistakes. But as he continued to study, he recognized that the real purpose of the parable was the love of the Father. And not just to receive that for ourselves, but to put it into practice. That we are to love people the way that God loves people, with mercy and grace. This morning, I'm beginning a new sermon series entitled Homecoming. Now, all this month, we are going along with a fall theme of homecoming, and we have several different fun events to gather people together to grow in their faith and serve the community. But in worship, we are going to spend the time looking at the story of the prodigal son. We're going to look at the painting by Rembrandt, and when you leave, there are cards that are replicas of the painting. You can pick those up at the Welcome Center around the church. If you're watching online, you can simply let us know where we can send us and we'll send you a, a copy of this because we'll come back to this painting time and again and study it the way Henry Nouwen did. And I think what we'll find is that it can have an effect in our life as well. Now the story comes from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And when you first look at it, it seems like there are three stories. And sometimes you'll hear them referred to as the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. But when you really study it, you realize there's only one parable. Jesus told them a parable. It just has three different stories within. And each of the stories have something that is lost. The first is a sheep that is lost, and the shepherd searches after it until he finds it. And then there's a coin that is lost, and the woman searches diligently for it until she finds it. And then it says there's a man who has two sons. Now, typically, we have thought of the younger son, the prodigal son, as the one who is lost. But as you study it, you realize both are lost in their own way. Now, the point of the whole parable is this audacious love of the Father, which symbolizes the incredible love of God for all of us, a love that pursues us and is merciful and gracious. There are three things that I think can help us identify this love for ourselves but more importantly, share God's love with others. First is to recognize 
that it's natural for us to identify with the younger son. Of course, when we read about the prodigal son who gathers his fortune and goes off to seek his own way in life and makes huge mistakes, we can identify with that. We all know our own sins. We know the things that we've done that we shouldn't have, and we know the things that we should have done but didn't. There's a great line in Psalm 51 that says, my sins are ever before me. We know the ways that we've messed up in life, and so we can find it easy to identify with the younger son. Now, he went up to his father, and he demanded his inheritance. Now, he was basically saying, I can't wait until you die. I want my inheritance now. In that day and age, the elder son would have received a double portion of the estate, and so what the younger son was demanding was a third of the estate. Now, what was the estate that the father was going to leave him? It was the land. It was part of the land and the livestock. That's not what the younger son wanted. He was shunning his birthright, and he was demanding kind of the cash value. Imagine you had this precious heirloom that had been passed down through the generations and it's time for you to pass it on to the next generation and you can't wait for their excitement when they receive it and instead they're, I'd rather you give me the cash value. How incredibly disrespectful and insulting. And a father in that time the normal course of action would have been to slap the son and turn his back on him, to deny him his request, because he wasn't wanting his birthright. He was wanting the cash value. And so it, it says that it took a few days because the father probably had to sell some of the land or the livestock to be able to give the younger son what he was demanding. And if that kind of insult wasn't enough, he went off to live in a foreign land. Now, that meant that he was not only turning his back on his father and family, but also his faith, because he was living amongst the Gentiles. We know that because he, was, uh, he hired himself out to feed the pigs, and Jewish farmers didn't have uh, pigs as livestock. So he had gone to a foreign land and squandered his money. That's important because among the Jewish people of that day, there was nothing worse than losing your fortune to the Gentiles. You were basically supposed to shop local. You didn't want to give all your money away to a foreign country. And so they had a ritual. They would have known about what was going on because the father lived in town. At that day and age, you didn't live on your land outside of town because you wanted to make the most of every inch of land you had, and two, you wanted the security of living amongst the people in town. And so these houses were close together and everybody knew everybody's business. And the ritual would have been if somebody squandered and lost their fortune among the Gentiles, the townspeople would have met them at the edge of town. If that person had tried to come back, they would have banished them for life. So the younger son 
recognizes that he can't return as a son because he's lost his fortune. And so it says that he was starving. He was hungry for what the pigs were eating. And so he came to himself and he realizes that his father's servants not only had food, but they had food enough to spare. And so he comes up with this plan that he'll go back home, not as a son, but he'll confess, I have sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your servants. Now, that's not actually remorse. It wasn't as if he was sitting there and he came to himself and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe how awful I was to my father. I can't believe how disrespectful it was. I can't believe what I've done. No, this is rather self-serving. He's starving and he's trying to find a way to get fed. And so he comes with this idea to go back home as a servant. Now this is important because the father runs to him, not because he's remorseful and repenting, the father runs to him because he's still lost. Remember the beginnings of the first two stories? The sheep is lost until the shepherd finds it. The coin is lost until the woman finds it. And the younger son is lost until the father finds him. Too many times we read into this story that the younger son has remorse, and so he comes back, and that allows the father to love him again. Exactly the opposite. The point of the story is that the father loves him even without the remorse and repentance. He is still lost, and the father finds him. When we're lost, God will find us. God runs to us pursues us, even when we are, in, we are unremorseful, when we've made mistakes, God pursues us. Now, of course, remorse and repentance are very important, but they come about because of God's love that helps us have the wherewithal to understand the error of our ways. It's because of God's love that finds us. Recently, I read a book entitled From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home. It was written by Tim B. Locke, and Netflix actually made a movie of it with Reese Witherspoon as one of the producers, and it starred Zoe Saldana. Well, Tim B. Locke might be a name that's familiar to you because she has had roles in a lot of television shows and movies. But in this book, she tells kind of the story of her life, beginning with when she went in college on a study abroad program to Italy. And while she was there, she met a man by the name of Saro, uh, short for Rosario. And Saro was a chef, and they had an immediate connection. They started dating, and they quickly fell in love with each other. Well, once her study abroad program was over, she continued to stay there with Sorrow, and she wanted to continue dating him. Well, her parents back home were 
a little concerned. They heard from their daughter. She was staying in Italy. She had met a man and fallen in love. And so they did what parents would do. And they went over to Italy to check this guy out. And what they found is he was absolutely the right man for their daughter. And they fell in love with him too. And so Sorrow met all of Timby's family. And yet she was never introduced to his. And Sorrow explained to her that his parents would never accept her because she was not from Sicily. He had had a previous girlfriend that he dated that was from the northern part of Italy, but she wasn't from Sicily, and so they totally rejected her. They would never accept Timby because she was an American, and they were convinced all Americans got divorced, and they'd never see their son again. And so they never met. Well, after a while, Timby got an acting job, and she went back to the U.S., and Sorrow knew that he had to follow the love of his life. And so he went to his parents, and he told them how much he loved Timby and that he was following her to the U.S., and they were beside themselves with grief and anger. He moved to the U.S., and a few months later, they became married in a secret wedding at the courthouse. They didn't tell his parents. So she never met them. She would say hello when they called to talk to Sorrow, but even those phone calls were few and far between. And so she kept after her husband to tell his parents that they were married. And after five years, they decided the best way to tell them was to have a second wedding there in Italy. And so they organized this wedding, and he wrote his parents and said that he was going to marry Timby. She, he, she was the love of his life, and he loved his parents and hoped they would attend. He mailed the letter, and a couple weeks later, he got a phone call from his father, Giuseppe. And Giuseppe said to him, I have no son. Basically saying, you're dead to me. That was the RSVP that his parents left. Now, they went ahead with their wedding plans. All of Timby's family went, and Sorrow knew in his head that his parents wouldn't show up, but he was still hoping in his heart they would change their mind. But when the wedding happened, the only people from his side of the family were an aunt and uncle who drove down from Switzerland, and they kept it secret because it would have dishonored Sorrow's father, Giuseppe, to go against his wishes and attend the wedding. That's how ingrained their culture was. After the wedding, they went home, and Sorrow was just deeply hurt by his parents' rejection. And Timby had still never met them. Well, a couple years after their wedding, and the fact that they had still never reconciled, There'd be one or two phone calls a year, but they'd only last a minute or two, very short, very curt. Timby had enough, and she planned a surprise visit to Sicily. And she told her husband, we are going to meet with them, and we are going to deal with this face-to-face, -face, because that's how her family would deal with it. It's not how his family would deal with it, and he was very skeptical. But six weeks later, they made their plans, and they uh, went to Sicily. 
He called his father and said that they were coming, and his father said, don't come to town. And so they found a hotel that was about 20 miles away from his hometown, and Sorrow was able to connect with his sister, Franca. They were both really close and desperate to see each other again. And they communicated that they would be at the hotel each night from 5 to 7 p.m. if anybody wanted to come and visit. Now, it took four days, and the first group of people that came to visit were second cousins. And then the next night, an aunt and uncle came to visit. Finally, on the seventh night, Franca and her husband and the two daughters her brother had never seen came to visit, and that was a tearful reunion. Everyone was crying. And Franca had told them that she and her mother, Nona, had been conspiring and sending a small group of people each night to kind of put the pressure on Giuseppe. It wasn't until the very last day that Nona, his mom, had had enough. She got up that morning and she told her husband, she broke with tradition of following the husband in everything, and she told him, I'm getting ready and I am going to find a ride and go see my son because I can't imagine him getting on a plane and me not seeing him again. You can either stay here or come along. That evening, Franca pulled up in the car and behind her was Nona, Sara's mom, and behind her was Giuseppe. When Nona saw her son, she ran and embraced him and kissed him on both cheeks and then she turned to Timby and did the same. They all went to, out to eat afterwards, and they were sitting at this local restaurant, all gathered around the table. And in her book, Timby explains, there was no grand apology. There wasn't anyone who expressed regret over the years of separation. But there was a sort of homecoming where they could begin their relationship again that night. God's love calls us home and calls us back together. Second, there are times that we can identify with the elder son. Now, for the sinners that Jesus received and would eat with, they could identify with the younger son. And to be honest, when we tell the story of the prodigal son, we just kind of limit it to the younger son because we really don't like the part about the elder son. It makes us uncomfortable. But for the Pharisees and scribes who were complaining that Jesus ate with sinners, they should have been able to identify with the elder son. And there are times that we can as well. What was the problem with the elder son? He did everything right. He was the one, he was dutiful, obedient, he was working in the fields for his father. He did everything right. But when it came to his younger brother coming home, his father throwing the celebration, he refused to be a part of it. He rejected his father. Now, the word that the Pharisees and scribes used was that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And when the elder brother asked what was going on, one of the servants, the servant said, 
your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And so that word was connecting them to the attitude of the elder son. The elder son rejected the father's joy. And he did so in a very disrespectful way. It would have been a huge insult for a son not to come into a party that a father had thrown. And again, the way you would have dealt with that, the father would have slapped the face of the son and turned his back on him, rejecting him because he had been so disrespectful. But what happens in the story? The father runs after him. Now, a Jewish man didn't run in that day and age because it was disrespectful. It was undignified. And so you, here you have the father, an image, running after not only the son, but the son who had been so disrespectful, pleading with him to come to celebrate. When we intentionally reject joy and mercy and grace for others, when we become indignant at we're trying to do things by the rules and we get upset that others take a shortcut or get away with doing it wrong, when we have an idea that we want to see people get caught for what they're doing, and if they don't, we want to publicly shame them, that's all the kind of attitude of the elder son. Years ago, when I was growing up in Ohio, I loved being with my grandparents. I was very close with my grandmother and I spent as much time as possible with her. Now I had numerous cousins and I was about halfway in between, half were older, half were younger, but there was one cousin who was right about my age. I was just a little bit older. She and her family lived in a different part of the United States and I didn't get along with her. Uh, we constantly would butt heads, and I looked at her, and I could see how smug and how she thought she knew everything, and I know that she would have described me the exact same way. And so we just didn't get along, and the truth of it was that I was really, really jealous of her, because when her family returned, all of the family, all the aunts and uncles and cousins got together for this homecoming. And my grandmother would focus on them, and she would fuss over my cousin. And I thought, she just doesn't see the kind of person she really is. And so there'd be this huge kind of celebration, this huge meal where we're all together, and everybody's celebrating and happy except me, and I'm pouting and indignant in the corner. I wish I could go back. You know, I was just nine at the time, and she was eight, but I wish that I had more maturity and I had more love for my grandmother to recognize that she was joyful at seeing this family that she didn't get to see very often. And I wish that I could have rejoiced for the simple reason that my grandmother was happy. When we resist the joy of God, when we resist God's mercy over someone, it, it takes on the attitude of the elder son. And we who have known God's mercy and forgiveness in our lives ought to be first to the celebration when God pours out mercy and forgiveness for others.
And third, the point of the parable is the love of the Father. Now, for the Pharisees and scribes, they were mocking Jesus, basically saying he's embarrassing himself by eating with sinners. And so Jesus told a parable. And the first two parts of the parable are to relate to the Pharisees and scribes and to all the people, because they both start with a question. What man of you wouldn't go looking for a sheep that became lost, and you would look until you found it, and then you would celebrate? Or what woman of you wouldn't search diligently for a silver coin until she found it, and then she would celebrate? And so those first two mini-stories are really to set up the third. Because they begin with this question, who of you wouldn't do this? You lost something, you find it. And then he comes to the third part and he says, there's no question, there was a man who had two sons. And so right away we know what's lost. Both sons are lost in their own way. And Jesus proceeds to tell them all the different ways that each son disrespected the father in egregious ways. And what does the father do? He runs after them, pursues them. Jesus was saying, you think it's embarrassing for me to eat with sinners? Let me tell you how far God will go and how he loves the lost. Well, it was a few years after Timby and Sorrow had reconnected with his family, and he noticed a knot behind his knee. He went and had it checked out, and the physician told him he had a rare form of soft tissue cancer, and it had metastasized to his femur. He went through incredible treatments, and they were able to save his leg, but They were very harsh and aggressive to his body, and they were incredibly costly. They decided not to tell his parents while he was going through the treatments. He wanted to wait until afterwards so he could tell them kind of where he was in that moment, and he was going to be okay. But his parents, hearing that their son had had cancer, announced that they were coming for a month-long visit. For Timby, Having her in-laws in the home for a month, and it was a small area, Sorrow was still trying to regain his strength. They didn't speak English, and they didn't drive, and so she had to drive them wherever they wanted to go, and every day they had places they needed to go, and it became too much. She was stressed about the bills, and, and so she said she needed some time with her family. And so all of them packed up and went to Houston to visit Timby's family. Sorrow and Timby and Giuseppe and Nona all went to Houston and stayed with Timby's family. And they would gather for mealtime, and Timby's family loved their son-in-law. They loved Sorrow. And they would have this huge family meal, and they'd all laugh and joke and love on sorrow. And at one of the meals, Nona starts to weep. And she said, I had no idea the amount of love in my son's life. I'm so grateful that your family is in his life. 
Well, a couple years after that, the cancer was in remission and Timby and Sara wanted to start their own family. They tried and uh, found that they were unable to get pregnant and so they adopted a baby girl and named her Zoella. And Zoella was the light of her father's life. Sorrow loved being her dad and just pampered her and she was daddy's little girl. Both he and Kimby loved being parents and both of their families loved being grandparents. Well, by the time that Zoella turned seven, the cancer returned to sorrow and they went through all the treatments, exhausted all of them and it was too much and he passed away. By that time, his father Giuseppe had also passed away about a year or two earlier. And so Timby and her mother-in-law were both widows. Before he died, Sorrow had asked Timby to bury his ashes next to his father's grave back in Sicily. And so she prepared and packed his ashes and prepared her daughter and they flew to Sicily for a month-long visit with her mother-in-law, the woman who had caused her so much pain at the beginning of her marriage was now comforting her at the end. Nona was very tender and kind and took care of all of Timby's needs in her deep grief, and she was patient and loving with her granddaughter in her own grief. And one day, Nona asked Timby to sit down and visit with her. And she said, this house and this land belongs to you. And Timmy didn't understand. And so Nona explained, sorrow would have inherited this house and this land. And so now it's only right that it goes to you and eventually to Zoella because you're family. And so Timby found a home in the very place that her beloved husband had been born and grown up. That's what God's love does in our lives. It can take a heart that is committed that her son is going to marry a fellow Sicilian to changing it to one that embraces her daughter-in-law and her adopted daughter or granddaughter as blood family. It's why we open our hearts to God's love because when we do, it changes our hearts and it changes the way we love others. It's why we're called to invite people to come home to the love of God. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.